You're listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. For more information about our church, visit our website at redrocksbaptist.org or follow us on Instagram at Red Rocks Baptist. A baby's first steps are a time of great delight for the entire family. If you don't have young children anymore, maybe you can think back several years ago, maybe several decades ago, to when your children took their first steps. And they, they look like a baby deer, just kind of tottering and wobbling as, as he or she slowly and, and unsteadily takes their few steps. And this is a significant milestone in the baby's life because, I mean, technically at that point on, he's a toddler because they're toddling around. They're learning to walk. And as a parent of young children, we've recently seen that when a child gets mobile like that, there are other challenges that take place. But there are a few things more heartwarming than watching a little one walk. And so I look back and try to figure out when our kids walked. This is Zane, and he learned to walk around 15 months, and uh, he just didn't like to do it. He just kind of was slow at it because we carried him around. Xander uh, was right around the same time, 15 months, and, and actually that's a screenshot of a video where he is literally like a baby deer, just kind of like stumbling around. He does it. He's, he put, takes like five or six steps. Uh, Knox was just over a year old because he had to keep up with his two older brothers, and uh, he didn't go from crawling to walking. He went from crawling to running, and that's just the way he was. The Christian life, though, is like walking. In fact, it's one of Paul's favorite metaphors for how we live our lives as Christians. He uses the term walk over 20 different times in his writings. And one of those times is back in Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7. This is what he says. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as you've been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. And if you were to look at the whole letter of Colossians as a, as a big unit, this two, these two verses, Colossians 2, 6, and 7, begin the application section of the letter. Through the rest of chapter 2, Paul explains how we are not supposed to walk. How are we not supposed to live? And he says things like, we shouldn't follow teaching that pushes us away from Christ. Rituals and experiences and rules may make us feel godly and sound spiritual, but they can't make us spiritually complete. We're only satisfied when we are connected to our head, Jesus Christ. And in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul shifts from warning about what not to do to positive encouragement about what we ought to do. In this chapter, Paul sketches out what the Christian walk should look like in practical terms. And he's very clear. Every part of the believer is transformed. Every part of the believer is changed. Because being united to Jesus and walking worthy of him is not something we can just set off to the side. It involves a total transformation of my heart, my head, my life, my words, my relationships. And so each week as we study Colossians 3 together, we're really just unpacking another aspect of how we ought to live our Christian lives. Now, a question for you. What do you think the first steps of the Christian walk should be? Just like each little person has to take their first steps somehow, 
What should the first steps be for a Christian? Should it be something about spiritual disciplines, like read your Bible regularly or gather for worship in the local church? Should it focus on on Christ-like character, like being humble or showing grace to everyone around you? Should the first steps be centered on our relationships, putting Christ at the center of all of our relationships, including our families or our work or our communities? And although Paul will address every single one of those topics in chapter 3, none of those things are the believer's first steps. Look at how chapter 3 is outlined. What are the first steps of the Christian walk? Changed affections that are oriented around heaven, which then leads to changed lives in character and in lifestyle. And we put off the former self and we put on the new self which then leads to changed relationships that are centered around Jesus. The order here is very intentional, and it's actually quite logical. Paul begins on the inside with our affections, which then lead to our character in our lives, which then result in changed relationships. Like ripples on a pond, it just spreads outward and outward. And so the first step of the Christian walk is to develop godly, affections. And to many of us, this is surprising, but it shouldn't be. Here's another instance of how a rules-based approach to Christian living has seeped into our minds, and here's how. When we think about our spiritual walks, what do we naturally gravitate toward? How do we explain how to live the Christian life? It's usually in terms of action and doing. And what does the Bible focus on first? It's what we desire. It's what we love. It's what our posture is, our mindset is. Because these things undergird the Christian life. And so naturally the question is, if if affections are so important, how do I develop them? How do I develop godly affections? And this text shows us how. But before we get to it, we have to take a minute and talk about the word affections. Because for most Christians in 2023, the word affections sounds antiquated. Like, did you make a mistake? Did you spell that word wrong? No, that's actually the word. And I doubt you used the word in your vocabulary this week, let alone considered how important they are for your spiritual growth. We, We really need to put this word back in our vocabularies because our affections will determine the direction of our life. So what do we mean by affections? Affections, here's how I'm defining it, and there's a lot of ways to do it. Affections refer to the controlling desires of your heart that set the direction for the rest of your life. They are the controlling desires of your heart that sets the direction for the rest of your life. And everyone has these deep-seated desires. It's not a question of if you have them. It's a question of what has them or what has captured them. Our affections shape what our goals are. They shape what we dream about and think about, what we enjoy, what we pursue in life. These strong inclinations of the will and of the soul affect so much of our lives. Let me give you a very um, minor and simple illustration. I have an affection for ice cream. What does that mean? Do you enjoy it? Well, yes, obviously. I love ice cream and I enjoy it and I 
I really enjoy exploring different flavors and sampling them and then getting a three, two scoop waffle cone at McGill's. But, but it, it goes deeper than that, okay? Because it's not just about loving or enjoying. If I have a choice of dessert, I incline toward ice cream. I have a preference for it over other things. And sometimes I desire it so much that I make a special trip after the kids go down to the grocery store to get the ice cream or we take a family trip to the ice cream store. Why? Is it just simply because I enjoy it? No, I enjoy a lot of things in life that I don't go make special trips for. I have an affection for, again, very silly, but a dessert, ice cream. And obviously too much of that affection leads to other changes as well. Now, one of the questions might be, are affections and emotions the same thing? You talk about joy, for instance. And and a lot of times in our world, if you read about it online, people will say that affections and emotions are the same thing. And that's not quite accurate. They certainly include our emotions, but our affections are deeper than them. And one author that I found online summarized the difference between the two with this chart. Our affections are long-lasting, whereas emotions tend to be fleeting. Our affections are usually deep and consistent with what we believe. But our emotions can be superficial. and In fact, sometimes they can overpower you in a direction you don't want to go. They can tug on your heartstrings even though if you know it's wrong. Affections result in action. They, they, they lead to decisions. They lead to choices. And emotions often fail to produce anything of lasting value because we're moved emotionally, but our will has not made a decision. And our affections involve our minds, our wills, our feelings, and our emotions sometimes can bypass the mind and the will. And there's a whole fascinating psychology of this that you can look at with marketing where they're trying to get you to emotionally respond and bypass your thinking so that you make a decision. Third thing here about emotion or about affections, they can be either good or bad. And we need to recognize that that it is possible to have the wrong kind of affections, When your hearts prefer sinful things or things of this life more than Jesus, we have the wrong kind of affections. But the right kind of affections will enable us to pursue godly things. And it'll help us to leave behind the earthly, selfish, temporal things that we're naturally drawn toward. Because a changed life isn't just changing what I do on the outside. A changed life begins with transformed affections. So how do we develop these godly affections? In other words, what is God's pathway for changing the deepest desires of our hearts so that we we incline toward godliness and we resist evil? Colossians 3, 1 through 4 answers this question with four parts, with four action steps. So what I'd like us to do is walk through this text, identify these steps, and then put all the pieces of the puzzle together and see how do we develop godly affections. And the first thing that we do is we embrace the implications of our identities in Christ. Embrace the implications of your identity in Christ. What do I mean by that? It's kind of a lot of words there. Verse 1 begins... If then you were raised with Christ. And what Paul is going to do is draw out all of the truths and all of the responses that we should have based on our new identity. You say, how do you know that? Well, 
If you look at this little phrase, if you then were raised with Christ, the word then is a, a, a transition of sorts, a signal that he's summarizing everything that came before, and he is then transitioning to how we ought to live based on it. All the truths of chapters one and two, truths about who God is, truths about who Christ is, truths about who we are in our salvation in him, truths about how we are to resist the sinful things of the world, all of those things are bound up in what he's about to command us to do. Your lifestyle will naturally follow your convictions. What you believe matters. What you believe matters. Now this phrase begins with the word if, which makes it a conditional statement. If you then were raised with Christ. Is Paul unsure of that? No. He knows that true believers have been raised with Christ, but he is using this to make you consider the outcomes and the applications of this truth. We could read the phrase this way. If you were raised with Jesus, and you were, then here is the natural outworking of this truth. If you were raised, and you were, now you ought to live this way. So what's the truth that Paul draws attention toward? It's our resurrection with Christ. Now think with me, chronologically, before someone can rise from the dead, what must first happen? They must die. It's kind of morbid. But they must die. And that, that's exactly what Paul says a few verses earlier in chapter 2, verse 20. If you glance back at that, what does Paul say? Therefore, if you died with Christ. And because we've died with Christ, Paul makes clear that we've died to sin. We now live by God's grace. We serve a new master. But, but we didn't just die to sin. We rose to something. We rose to newness of life. Just as Christ was raised from the dead and will never die again, we have this same hope of eternal life. Now, the phrase that I just said, we have been raised to walk in newness of life, does that sound familiar to you? I hope so. Because <laughs> we said it three times this morning when we baptized our three friends. Raised to walk in newness of life. And so dying with Christ and being raised with Christ pictures salvation, and that's what baptism is all about. Baptism is a powerful symbol of our new identity in Christ. So how do we develop godly affections? We recognize who we are in Christ, and then we live consistently with that identity. For example, we've seen through chapters 1 and 2 who we are. We, were, we are citizens of Christ's kingdom, so we live for our true homeland. We are redeemed, so we don't serve sin any longer. We are forgiven, so we don't carry around guilt and shame. We also forgive others. We are reconciled to God, so we have peace with God. There's no condemnation that we fear. We can also be at peace with other people. So do you see how each identity trait has implications that we follow? Who you are and who you believe yourself to be will deeply affect you because your identity is a controlling principle in your life. That's why our secular world talks so much about their identity. Because they understand something a lot of Christians don't wrap their minds around, is that who you believe yourself to be will affect the way that you live. So we have to embrace first our identity. Because changing our affections isn't just switching around what we do. We learned that last week. It's not rules or regulations or experiences that change us. Changing our affections has to begin at our core. But it doesn't stop there. 
We develop godly affections, second, by prioritizing heavenly things. And this is found in the second half of verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. So the second thing we do is we prioritize heavenly things. To seek is to devote serious effort to accomplish a goal, to strive for something. So, so let me contrast this. The children play the game hide and seek, and they kind of laze around, and, and we were playing a game uh, at the Fuller's house a couple weeks ago, and, and actually Zane was hiding next to me on the couch, and I just put a pillow over him, and, and you could see all over, but, but they couldn't find him. It was just kind of like, oh, I don't know where he is. That's not the kind of seeking going on here. It's the kind of seeking that a firefighter has when he rushes into a burning building, searching to save people from the flames. There's zeal and intensity to our searching, our seeking things above. Things above obviously refers to heaven. Our priorities should be focused on heaven. And and we can't do this if our hearts are not involved in it. That's actually why, if you're holding a new international version, NIV, it says, set your hearts on things above. Set your hearts on things above. But why do we seek things above? I mean, is that just like a spatial issue? Are we trying to just get a little bit taller? You know, if we keep looking up, you know, chiropractors have got a business all across America. No, we seek things above because that's where Christ is. He's seated at the right hand of God. And by reminding us of Jesus' position, Paul gives us a huge reason why we ought to prioritize heavenly living here on earth. If you've been united to Christ by faith, and if Jesus resides in heaven, then we should live as if we were already there. When I was in college, there was a story going around about one of the the foreign students from Africa. And I I looked previously to see if this was true or not. I couldn't find out. It's probably not true because it sounds too good to be true. You'll see here in a minute. But the story went something like this. A young man was on a scholarship to study the Bible at the university. Then he was going to go back to Africa and, and be a pastor and plant churches. And as it goes... The administration, his, his guidance counselor, found out that he was only eating one meal a week. And so the, the man pulled him over and said, what are you doing? You know, do you, you do understand that your tuition includes the dining hall. You can go eat there three square meals a day. He said, I understand that perfectly. But you see, when I go back to my homeland in Africa, we only get one meal a day. And if I start eating so much here, I will start to become attached to what is here. And I don't want it to prevent me something as simple as as food. I don't want that to prevent me from going back home and doing what the Lord's called me to do. I don't, again, I don't know if that's true or not, but if it is, that's the type of attitude that we ought to have as believers. We ought to orient our lives around heavenly values to prioritize heavenly things. This 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 is a posture it's, it's, it's a direction that we face. As one commentator wrote, our identification with Christ in his resurrection means that in an ultimate sense, heaven is where we truly are also. 
it's only natural that we seek to align our whole being with our true heavenly identity. Think about your priorities in life. Think about the goals that you've set, whether on paper, maybe back in January, if you're still following those, or just the things that you've been pursuing recently. Would you say that your pursuits and your priorities are worthy of heaven? Do they help you live more for Christ and follow his mission in the world? Or do they make it difficult for you to live for your true homeland? It is wise for us to assess and correct, to sharpen our priorities in life because we're, we're people. We have physical bodies, we have senses, and it's so tempting and easy for us to be affected by what we experience. And so we regularly need to realign our priorities so that we are truly seeking heavenly things. And in a small sense, that's what worship does every week, is that we all come here and we gather, and it's not some dirge that we do, it's not some routine or ritual that we engage in, it's actually living worship, where we come to the spiritual Mount Zion, to the mountain of God in a spiritual form. We don't leave here. And we ascend into the very throne room of God spiritually. And we praise him and we worship him and we see him. And seeing the truth and hearing the word preached realigns us. Because as the songwriter said, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We have to prioritize heavenly things. And to do this, we have to think about heaven, right? It's going to be hard to prioritize something you don't think about. And interestingly, that's the third thing Paul says. Colossians 3, 2, set your minds on things above, not on things of the earth. The third step to develop godly affections is to adopt a heavenly mindset. And at first glance, verses 1 and 2 appear to be saying basically the same thing. But there's a slight nuance, and it's very important. Verse 1 emphasized our heart's priorities. Verse 2 emphasizes our mindset. Affections are shaped by our identity, our hearts, and our thoughts. And the main command here in verse 2 is to set your mind. It means to give careful consideration to something, to deliberate over, to form a mental habit. What are we to focus our thoughts on? Things above which is the exact same thing that verse 1 said. We ought to think as if we are already in heaven with Christ. And if you're thinking about heaven and you're thinking about Christ, is that going to affect the way you live here on earth? Absolutely. Now there's something to avoid here that's introduced into the text. Setting our minds on things on the earth. So there's a contrast. Things above and things below. Between heaven and earth. Between the spiritual and the physical. The unbelievers of our culture set their minds on the things that they can sense, what they can see, what they can experience, what they can feel. They prioritize these things. And in fact, they make them idols. They pursue them with their lives. They spend their money on them. They fret over them. They worry over them. And that's not supposed to be the way that we are to live. We know Christ. We have something so much greater waiting for us in heaven. But we struggle with this, don't we? 
We live in the same world as our unbelieving friends. And it's so easy to get caught up in setting our minds in the things around us. Instead of thinking deeply about our glorious God, we indulge in hours of amusement literally without thought. We spend days without thinking deeply about anything. Instead of thinking about how to lay up treasure in heaven, we think about all the ways that we can lay up treasure on earth. Reading about which funds yield a higher return, staying up to speed on all the latest ways to save a few bucks. Should we be wise stewards of our money? Yes, but what's greater? Instead of thinking about pleasing Christ, we fret over whether those other people are going to like us or not. And how can we change ourselves to, to, to get in with them? Instead of thinking about how to reach my coworkers and acquaintances with the gospel, we think about how to just get through the day without too much of a hassle. Instead of thinking about how my words and my emotions, my attitudes will influence my children, even as we do routine things around the house or, or errands to run, uh, I allow my emotions to control me and vent my frustrations. Instead of thinking about how blessed we are in Christ, how complete we are in him, we complain about our inconveniences, like the line at the Social Security Administration or the most recent body part that isn't working right. How is this any different from the world around us? As we live life, our thoughts ought to be fixed on accomplishing life for God's glory, on living life for heaven's realities. So often the difference in living the Christian life is just how we think. Because we're called to do life We have to work, we have to get out of bed, we have to go eat, we have to put food on the table, just like everyone else around us. But but the way in which we do these things ought to be different. How, seriously consider this, how would your life change if every morning you spent five minutes thinking about Jesus and heaven and eternity? Yes, we can read our Bibles, but if you spent five minutes actively thinking about heaven and Jesus and eternity, what kind of perspective shift would take place? Would that clarify things for us as we go throughout our day? I think that brief exercise would help us to develop godly affections. Because what it's going to do as we turn our thoughts to heaven is to start anticipating our glorious future. And that's the fourth thing that Paul says. We develop godly affections forth by anticipating future glory. This is verses 3 and 4. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. So number four, anticipate future glory. Now verses three and four begin with the word for, which supplies us with the reason why we seek things above and set our minds on things above. And what Paul's doing here in these two verses is pointing us toward our glorious future. The more we anticipate our future, the greater our desire will be for it to come. I think the reason a lot of Christians don't desire Jesus to return and don't desire heaven is because they never think about it. Look at what Paul says in these verses. There's a fantastic comparison between the terms hidden and appear. He starts with a statement of fact. You died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And, and this is really a comforting picture. 
that you didn't just die and get buried somewhere out there and Jesus says, I'll return for you. You died and were buried and hidden in him. We receive protection from spiritual danger. We are safe in the arms of Jesus for all eternity. We're hidden in him. And I think this also points to another nuance. And it's though we've been united to Jesus by faith, we don't see him right now. But as 1 Peter 1 says, having not seen him, we love him. There is nothing that can separate us from his love. We're totally confident in him. Not only because we're hidden in him, but notice what Paul says next. When Christ, who is our life, our life, Jesus is your life. The reason you have beats in your heart is because of Jesus. The reason that you can walk another day is because Jesus wills it. The reason that you have hope for eternity is because Jesus is your life. That should leave us dumbfounded. And yet, we don't think about it. We don't anticipate him. Jesus is our hope in life and death. Our existence on this earth and our hope of eternal life is exclusively because of him. And I, I just have to ask, if Jesus is our very life, then why do we live for ourselves? Why do we pretend to have control over our own lives? To take the life Jesus has blessed us with and use it for ourselves is, is really the height of hubris or, or vanity or arrogance maybe. How arrogant are we to live selfishly when Jesus is our life? 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 reminds us that the love of Christ compels us. It motivates us. It drives us forward. Because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all. That those who live should no longer live for themselves. But for him who died for them and rose again. We ought to live for him because we really do live in him. We ought to live for him because we live in him. And we do this until Christ appears, which is what verse 4 says. Because when Christ appears, then you will appear with him in glory. And here's the contrast. You're hidden in Christ right now, and he's hidden up there in heaven to our eyes. But when he appears, we will appear. And our true lives will begin. 1 John 3, 2 says, when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Jesus will be seen, and your faith will become sight. That is our destiny. But is that what we anticipate? Or are we more concerned with the blockbuster movie coming out later this summer, or the trip that we have planned down the road? Is that what we long for? Here's the key point for us. What we believe about the future will shape what we desire in the present. For our family, these last couple of weeks have been the birthday bash, the birthday cluster. I don't know what you call it. Uh, Only Zane, our oldest, doesn't have a birthday between last Monday, June 19th, and July 1st, next Saturday. So there's four of us in like 10 days. And I'll let you figure out where mine is. This past Monday was Xander's birthday. He's our second born. 
And, and he looked forward to this birthday literally for months. Like as soon as Zane's birthday was done in like Thanksgiving, he's like, Dad, how long to my birthday? And I'm like, hold on, I gotta do the math. And then in February, how long? Four months and change, buddy. But as we got closer, the anticipation built, the excitement built. We asked him what gifts he hoped to get, knowing what we had already bought him. We asked him, and actually what he wanted was what, exactly what we got him. We asked him what kind of cake he wanted, what he wanted to do on his birthday. I took him to the Lego store so he could look around and kind of get an idea for the things that he could ask for. And the more he anticipated his upcoming birthday, the more he wanted it to be here, the greater his desire for it to come was. Our anticipation of Jesus shapes us. If Christ is our treasure, and he should be, does the promise of, of one day being with him and finally acquiring this glorious treasure, does that motivate you? Does that thrill your soul? Do you long for that day? Because if you claim Jesus as your savior on one hand and confess he's the treasure of my heart, but you don't really long for him, there's something missing. There's something broken there. Maybe it's a lack of understanding. Maybe you need to see Christ in his glory. Maybe there's some sin blocking you. There is something wondrous about Jesus being our treasure because the more we long for him and the greater our desire is for him, the more precious to us he becomes. And so we want him. Our hearts are shaped for him. So let's put this together. How do we develop godly affections as we've seen in this passage? It involves our identity, our pursuits, and our priorities, our mindset and our future hope. You develop godly affections by totally reorienting your life around Jesus, your treasure. You long for him. That's why in Matthew 6, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where your treasure is, what is the great desire of your soul, that's where your heart will be. to treasure Jesus more deeply. Every part of our lives should be centered on him. But before we conclude, there is one major obstacle to revolving your life around Jesus and treasuring him above all else. And this isn't just like a, a little blip on the radar or a little roadblock. This is an existential threat, a death blow to developing godly affections. What is it? It's worldliness, Many people use the term worldly or worldliness to describe activities they wouldn't participate in or other Christians who have looser standards, they're just worldly. And, and, and certain behaviors definitely are worldly, but, but, but worldliness goes far deeper than that and it's much more serious than that because worldliness is the inverse of this passage right here. Worldliness is setting your affections on things below It's being more in love with this life than heaven. It's embracing an earthly identity and believing that something in this creation defines me. It's prioritizing these things here and these things first of all. It's setting our hopes and our dreams on something temporary. 
like Demas who forsook Paul because he was in love with the world. Worldliness is being more in love with the things of this life more than loving Christ. It's greater loyalty to people or things than it is to God. It embraces positions and actions in life that are opposed to God and his word. And it bends, worldliness does, it bends our affections from heaven back to earth to the temporary, the transient life we now have. How worldly have we become? How much do we resemble the world around us, loving what they love, thinking just like they think, anticipating everything that they long for? How sad. How how sad when people who have the only treasure that can satisfy, when we trade this treasure of infinite value to settle for trinkets. Instead of picking something that will last, we go to the proverbial dollar store and the toy breaks in a span of minutes. In what ways has the culture tempted you? Because I don't think worldliness is just something we can easily chalk up to someone else. We have to really wrestle with this in our heart. How have we set our our affections on things below? And I'll confess, as I was working through this, I'm far more worldly than I ought to be. And by the grace of God, I'm going to grow. I'm not going to stay where I am. I'm not going to value the things I value. I'm going to continue to go back to Scripture and say, how can I treasure Christ more? How can I set my affections on things above? And so my brothers and sisters, I'm not, I'm not angry here. I think, I think we have some work to do in our American culture And I don't know your heart. I don't know how God's moving in your spirit right now. But we have to resist the siren song. The world tempts us, but its promises and its pleasures destroy the right kind of affections. Like a thirsty man who drinks salt water, it'll end in ruin and death. Hold fast to your treasure. Keep your gaze fixed on him And I would call you to reorient your life around Jesus because if you change your affections, you have changed your life. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, you know how I've wrestled with this text and how it's convicted me about how often I set my affections on things below, which is in direct violation of this passage. And I just pray that you would grow me and many of my brothers and sisters in Christ who are feeling the same way today, that we would grow together, that we would would embrace the grace that is found in relationship to Christ, that we wouldn't try to to fix our problems and fix our worldliness by, by more rules or rituals, but that we would look to Christ and that our hearts would be set on Christ and our minds would be consumed with Christ and that we would realize day after day who we are in Christ. And that as we wake up every morning, we would have a vision of future glory that drives us through the challenges of this life. Because as Paul wrote in another passage, the hardships, the afflictions of this life are momentary light things that are producing in us a weight of glory that will be revealed someday. So give us grace as individuals, yes, as families, yes, and as a church also to develop the the right kind of loves, the right kind of emotions, the right kind of affections so that we may orient our hearts and our minds around Jesus. In his name we pray.
Thanks for listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. If you enjoy this content, please consider sharing it with others. Our mission at Red Rocks Baptist Church is to know Christ and to make Him known. May God bless you as you follow Him.